church. Good morning. Um, it's great to be with you again. As Torin said, I'm Erin, live in Washington, D.C. We don't have snow yet, but all these slides of the snow in the background are making me be like, why don't I live in Michigan with a snowy Christmas, right? <laughs> right. Um, we don't have a snowy Christmas. I'm not expecting a snowy Christmas, but um, I did love waking up this morning and seeing a bit of snow on the ground. That was really Beautiful. So I'm happy to be in Michigan, even in December. Everybody was like, where are you preaching this weekend? I was like, Michigan. They're like, okay, uh, in December. But it's been really lovely. Um, so thank you. I always love being with you guys. I feel like every visit, I was thinking this could be like my fifth preach here, maybe sixth preach. We're up there at this point. And uh, so it's been really fun to get to know you. Please feel free to talk to me. Um, I like getting to know you and I, and I like seeing people again on repeat when I come back to the church. So um, don't be afraid. You can talk to me. I'm very extroverted as you may be able to tell. Um, so that makes me very happy. Um, so I'm continuing in our series on, um, on still, be still. And we're looking this week at how God stills our fears stills our fears. And Torrin opened up the, the series talking about Advent and talking about how Advent comes from the Latin word for coming. Who is coming? Jesus is coming, right? And the funny thing about Advent is it sits in this really weird theological space where it's where we sit in time. Jesus has come, right? And Jesus is also here, present in our hearts, and Jesus is also coming again, <laughs> right? So it's in this weird space, and if that's all kind of like twisty in your mind, that's okay. Uh, these are parts of the mysteries of God, the mysteries of what it means to follow God, that God is sort of beyond time in that way. And so, so we wait. We wait in Advent. We prepare ourselves. Prepare ourselves for the coming of Christ. And when we wait and when we prepare ourselves, we're putting ourselves in the same space as the people of Israel. The people of Israel waited. We know that between the Old Testament and the New Testament, we have hundreds of years of waiting. Hundreds of years of the, the people of God waiting. They'd been prophesied that the Messiah would come, the Messiah would turn the world upside down, the Messiah would bring freedom, the Messiah would enter, would uh, invoke a new age, the age to come, it was called. They knew that it was a good thing that they were waiting for. And so in Advent, we sort of put ourselves in this posture of waiting. Someone said to me this week, Advent is a protest. Advent is a protest to Christmas coming without us preparing for it. <laughs> and it is easy, you know, in the midst of the crazy Christmas season um, to, I like texted a friend this week and I was like, hey, let's plan for this thing. And she was like, I cannot plan anything until I finish my Christmas shopping. <laughs> and I was like, okay, well, when's that going to be? Like, the life is like on hold for her through the preparations. Uh, but there's something about Advent which calls us to stop, to wait, to prepare ourselves so that when we get to Christmas, we don't just find ourselves kind of slamming into it in, you know, in reverse, having been going in six speed down the highway and putting ourselves in reverse and go, oh, yeah, Christmas, oh, yeah, Jesus, yeah, fantastic, great, you know. Um, this is meant to be a, a preparation of the heart. And so it's a waiting. Now, I don't know about you, I'm not great at waiting. There's a lot of traffic in D.C., and so I spend a lot of time on the highway waiting. And you know you're not a great person at waiting when you're sitting in the car, and this is like, I've got this down to like a science now. You're sitting in the car, and like, you pick a car in the other lane, right? And you follow the car. Are you passing the car? Is it passing you? Are you beating the other lane? Did you pick the right lane? <laughs> And maybe you're like that at Target right now or somewhere else where you're shopping and you're like looking at the lane to the left. 
and the lane to the right, and the lane to the left, and you're like, I picked the wrong lane. You guys must be better at waiting than I am. If you're not relating to that, you must be better. So you can teach me. You can teach me later about the fruit of the spirit of patience. Um, But waiting isn't always easy, especially for things that are good. The people of God waited for hundreds of years for something that was going to change their lives. It was going to change the world. Sometimes waiting is really hard, especially for something that is good. And maybe that's you this morning. You're waiting on the promises of God to be fulfilled in your life. You're waiting on your end-of-term grades. You're waiting on a promotion that may or may not come through in January. Maybe you're waiting on something that's good and it's really hard to wait. Well, I want to show you a a video of um, some children who also found it hard to wait for things that were good. So you may have heard about the marshmallow test where you put a marshmallow in front of a, a child and you tell them if they don't eat it, when you come back, you'll give them two marshmallows. So let's see how this goes. One down, one down. She's not even out the door. I like there's just no shame. She was just like straight into it, wasn't she? Um, So waiting can be hard. Waiting can be hard, especially for things that are good and that we are excited about that are coming. It's interesting if waiting is so hard that it's impressive, actually, that at the beginning of the story of Jesus in every gospel, we have people who are waiting. All the people of God were waiting, but also we see individuals who are waiting. So we're going to look this morning at Luke chapter 1 starting here with Zachariah and Elizabeth, who were waiting. Luke chapter 1, verse 5. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. They were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren. And both were advanced in years. Now, while he was serving as priest before God when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of people were praying outside at the hour of incense. 
And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord, standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness. Many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. He must not drink wine or strong drink, or he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, He will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And Zechariah said to the angel, how shall I know this? For I'm an old man and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I'm Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. It's hard to wait. It's hard to wait for things that are good. And even once the answer comes, as in Zechariah's experience, the angel appears to him to tell him this amazing thing has happened, that you've waited all your lives for and that you've given up thinking could ever be possible. It's come. And sometimes even when that thing comes, we're still in disbelief about it. The angel is standing in front of him and he's still going, but are you sure? (laughs) Is this really possible? Waiting on the promises of God is hard. Henry Nouwen says, for many people, waiting is an awful desert between where they are and where they want to go. Waiting is an awful desert between where they are and where they want to go. And maybe you are experiencing that today. Maybe you're in a desert of waiting, and it looks just like the horizon is sand as far as you can see, and you're not sure when you're going to come out of it. And in our day today, even in our society, I think waiting is hard. Because one of the most pervasive uh, emotions around us is fear. People are afraid. Afraid of other people. Afraid of the future. Afraid of expressing their own inner feelings. And fearful people have a hard time waiting. Because when you're afraid, even just in our human bodies and our human psychology, we want to act. It's, it's fight or flight, right? When we're afraid, we don't want to sit there feeling afraid. We want to do something. And so when we're in a season of waiting and we're afraid, it's really hard to wait, especially because we want to take action. We want to make something happen. And this is true for individuals as well as whole societies, communities, institutions. It's hard to wait when we're feeling fearful. So as we enter into this season of waiting, we're in our third week of it, it's helpful to ask, who are we waiting for? And what do we do if we find ourselves in that space of knowing that God's calling us to wait, but knowing that we're also afraid? Well, as we look at these stories of Jesus, these classic Advent and Christmas stories, which we've heard many times in our lives and which maybe have become a little bit dry, I want us to look at the themes that we'll see in them. I want to pull out one particular theme, which is that whenever an angel appears or someone representing God appears, they say the phrase, do not fear, right? Do not fear. 
The angel appears to Zechariah, to Mary, to the shepherds, and says, do not fear, do not be afraid. And this wasn't just in the New Testament. In the Old Testament, an angel appears to Hagar, to Daniel, and says the same thing. Do not fear. God himself appears to Abraham and to Isaac with the same message. Do not be afraid. Jesus says it to the women at the tomb. It goes all the way into Revelation, the command to not fear. In fact, the command to not fear shows up over a hundred times in Scripture. Do not fear. Even more than the command to love, do not fear. Do not be afraid. And what's happening here is something I want to talk about. I'm going to get a little bit nerdy for a minute, all right? So stick with me. Uh, It's called theophany. Theophany. And it's a theological term, and it means when God shows up. So it comes from the Greek theo, meaning God, and then funny from the verb to to see, to appear. When God shows up, theophany. So whenever God shows up in scripture, think about the burning bush. Think about God's glory passing before Moses. Think about, you know, Elijah in the cave and the wind and the whisperer of God's presence. When God shows up in these theophanies all through scripture, they happen in the Old Testament, in the New Testament, there's actually themes to all of them that are similar. So even though these writers of scripture are, you know, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years apart from different cultures and different geographic locations, they all say the same things about when God shows up. There's some specific characteristics about theophany. When God appears. Theophany uh, was this idea first comes from actually a pagan festival at Delphi. And at this festival, they would worship um, all these different gods for days on end. And then at the end, they would show them these pictures. Like you've been worshiping God, you've been asking God to show up, and they would put up pictures and say, this is what God looks like. So when God appears, was literally like they would show a sculpture or a drawn picture, this is God appearing. So that's where that term comes from. But we see it all through the Old Testament and the New Testament. We see God showing up. God of creation could appear whenever and wherever he chose, but he showed up in similar ways throughout scripture. So the first characteristic is divine initiation. God appears of God's own volition. Now, this is different for Yahweh than other gods. Other gods in the ancient Near East, it was believed you needed to do something for God to appear. You had to earn it. But Yahweh comes of his own volition, out of love for his people, out of grace. Often despite the way they're acting, God shows up. Secondly, it's temporary. God often shows up and then disappears again. Think of the angel Gabriel. God showing up in the angel Gabriel, appearing, and then angel doesn't stick around, angel disappears. So the temporariness. Whenever God shows up, it's to save and to judge. To save his people, to rescue his people, and often to talk to them about the ways they're living and and try to put them back on the right path. Next, he imparts holiness to them. He often shows up not just to uh, appear for, you know, giggles, um, but to show up to actually impart holiness, to transform them. By God appearing, they are changed. Think about Moses. You know, when Moses, even though he has a veil and the glory passes before him, all of a sudden his face is is bright, right? He's got to put on the veil when he goes down to see people because it's too much. He's been transformed by God's holiness. God imparts holiness when he appears. Revealing and concealing. Sometimes God shows up, think again about his glory passing by. He couldn't show up completely to Moses, so he conceals himself a little bit, even as he reveals himself a little bit. 
natural upheaval. God often shows up and something happens to physical creation. There's a storm. There's a bush that catches on fire. There's lightning. There's thunder. The seas, you know, shake. Something happens in nature because God is a God of creation. And lastly, theophonic words. That's just a fancy way of saying God says stuff. (laughs) When God shows up in theophany, God says stuff. And some theologians would say that the most important part isn't really about the clouds or the temporariness or whatever else is happening. It's actually about what, what does God say when God shows up? What is God saying to his people? What are his words? And lastly, human fear. It's very common in every time when God appears through the Old Testament or the New Testament that people become afraid. Right? We just saw that with Zechariah. says he got really scared. says he was like, ah, with the angel Gabriel. He gets afraid. Now, I have a whole series on this, but don't worry, I'm not preaching it this morning. (laughs) You're okay. We're all going to leave eventually. Um, But I do want to focus on a couple of these things because what we're seeing in the incarnation is is the ultimate theophany. What we're seeing in Jesus' appearing is God showing up and God changing the atmosphere. Now, if I walk out this door and come back in, nothing really happens. I mean, you're confused for a minute and Torin thinks he's got to get up and finish my sermon. But nothing else really happens. Whereas when God comes in, when God shows up, the environment changes. Everything changes. God showing up in the incarnation is the ultimate theophany. God shows up, as we said, because of his own initiation. I don't have to run around and burn a lot of things and sacrifice animals so that God will show up. And sometimes we fall into that fallacy. Sometimes we think, I haven't prayed enough. That's why I can't see God. I haven't been a good enough person. I may have gone the wrong direction when I heard the Holy Spirit say, go right, I went left. (gasps) God will never appear now. (laughs) That's not what scripture seems to say about God showing up. God shows up of his own initiation and out of his own love. And always out of the desire to restore his relationship with creation with humanity, because God cares more about the restoration of his relationship with you than you do. He longs for the restoration of all things. So these clouds and this lightning and all these physical, you know, manifestations are really not the main point. The main point is the restoration of all things. The purpose of it is because he loves us. And I think as we wait, we we ask a lot of questions. I think when we're waiting, a lot of questions come to our mind, like, where are you, God? Why aren't you here yet? Why are you taking so long? Do you really care? Maybe you care, but maybe you're not powerful enough. Maybe you're powerful enough, but you're not good enough. Why aren't you showing up? We have all these questions. And I think so many of those questions and so much of our restlessness in waiting is answered in the incarnation. Some of you are waiting for um, exams. You know, a lot of people have exams this week. A lot of people are studying, I know. Um, Don't want to stress you out by mentioning that in church. Um, (laughs) But there's a story of an English professor. And it's after Christmas break, and he's got all his papers, and he's grading them. And he looks at one of the answers where a student has not actually written the answer to the question, but has written, God only knows the answer to this question. Merry Christmas. (laughs) So the professor writes down on the paper, well, God gets an A and you get an F. Happy New Year. 
<laughs> Many of us have unanswered questions as we enter into Christmas time and into the incarnation. And God does. Many of the questions, only God does know the answer to those. And he answers them in the incarnation. The God we're waiting for has come of his own volition into the brokenness of the world. Because he does care. He is powerful enough. He has not forgotten you. He is overwhelmed with love for his people. He reveals himself more and more to his people. He's a God who is alive, who's real, who's eminently available, who's powerful enough and willing enough to act. And he has acted. He's committed to the well-being of his people as much today as he was then. Psalm 145 encourages us if we feel this season that God is far from us. The Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. You don't have to do a special dance to get God to appear. You can just ask God, would you be near me, Lord, in this season of waiting? So he comes of his own volition, and often people are afraid, as we see. Human reaction to the theophany throughout scripture, throughout all these centuries and all these different personalities of people and cultures, is fear. We see it from the burning bush to the bundled up wise men. And it's partly mystery. It's partly power that frightens humans in the presence of God. It's also God's holiness. Just the awe of sitting in that moment with something that is so other so majestic. Those people in that moment are reminded that I am the creation. That is the creator. They're reminded of their size in comparison to God. C.S. Lewis talks a lot about this in his writings, this reaction, this human reaction. And he states that this fear is not a fear that one feels for a tiger or a ghost, but rather one is filled with awe. One feels wonder. A certain shrinking, a sense of inadequacy to cope with such a visit. It's a fear that comes out of our love for God. Often this is where our translations let us down because the proper word in the Greek or the Hebrew is often reverence or awe versus fear like we read it. Psalm 130 explains this kind of a reaction to God. If you, O Lord, kept a record of sins, Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness, therefore you're feared. You're feared almost out of your goodness, God. I'm in awe of you. I reverence you. I put you in your right place and me where I belong. Because of your love for me, God, I'm in awe of you. Fear of the Lord, scripture tells us, is the beginning of wisdom. Seems to be a posture that we're supposed to experience as followers of Jesus. There was, um, when I first started ministry, I lived in London. I lived in a square in the middle of London, and it was a very posh square, as they say in England. Um, it was the square that Margaret Thatcher lived on, so fancy. And, um, and I loved it. I served in this church for four years. And one day, I was sitting in, in the church. I was doing something, who knows, moving a chair or something. That's what pastors do in the middle of the week. <laughs> You're always wondering what they do. What do they do with all their time? Just moving chairs around. Um, so I was in the middle of the church, and it was quiet. No one was there. And I heard outside this loud noise. I heard this like, rrr, rrr, rrr. And this is like a quiet part of London. 
And so people shouting on the street is very rare. Uh, British people don't shout on the street. That's awkward. They don't do that. Um, so I was like, this is strange. So I go outside, and there's a guy walking down the street, and he has a megaphone. And he's shouting into the megaphone, you know, fear nothing, fear nothing. God says fear nothing. And um, being the usual American, I was very interested in this <laughs> and did not feel qualms. I actually kind of like weird people. I find them really interesting so they don't scare me. Um, so I was like, oh, let's figure out what's going on here, you know. So I walk up to this guy and he gets right up here. He's still talking in his megaphone, like in front of my face. Fear nothing. Scripture says fear nothing. And I was like, well, actually, the Bible does say fear one thing. And he goes, Bible says fear nothing, still like in my face. And I said, and I said, well, the Bible says to fear the Lord. And he goes, fear nothing, and like keeps going down the street. Uh, the Bible does say that the fear of the Lord is a good thing, right? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, but it's a different fear than we picture. It's not a fear that makes you want to run from the thing. It's a fear that makes you, makes you drawn into who God is because of God's size. Our reverence, our adoration, we honor God in those moments. So God appears in theophany. God comes not to make us afraid, as we might misunderstand it, but to bring us peace, to still our fears, and to bring us peace. We said it's important to note in theophany, what does God actually say? What did the angels say? Luke 2, we hear from the angel appearing to the wise men, peace to all people on whom God's favor rests, right, peace. He's come to bring us peace. We know in Isaiah, it's prophesied that the one who is coming will be the prince of peace. Not the prince of fear, the prince of peace. And most importantly, we can take Jesus' own words for it. In John 14, when all of his disciples are worried, because he's been saying all these really weird, creepy things about dying and then the temple being torn down and he's leaving them, but they don't want him to leave them and they're all very confused and afraid. He says in John 14, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, nor let them be afraid. Peace be with you. We hear over and over again when God shows up. My favorite theophany, besides the incarnation, comes in John 20. In John 20, Jesus has died and the disciples are all scared and they're hiding in a room. And it says in the passage, with a locked door. They're hiding behind a locked door for fear of the Jewish leaders. So they're afraid. I watch a lot of cop shows, a lot of mysteries. <laughs> so I call it Jesus' B&E. Jesus is breaking and entering. Um, Jesus' breaking and entering moment is in John 20. Because they're all crowded behind a locked door. They're afraid. They're cowering. They're isolating themselves out of fear. Out of not knowing what to do because they're disappointed. The plans of God seemed like this thing. He was right in front of them. It seemed so close. And then it all went away. And maybe that's where you are this morning. Maybe your heart or your mind is like a locked door God's outside of it somewhere. You're not even sure where he's gone. You're just trying to stay. You're just surviving on the other side, waiting in fear for whatever it is that might come because the plan has not gone the way you thought it would. So John 20. On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, 
Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and sighed. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again, Jesus said, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I'm sending you. And he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. He goes on to send them out in the power of the Spirit. And they're totally changed, right? This fear turns into joy when Jesus appears, when God appears to them. But the problem is Thomas wasn't there. <laughs> Thomas was out. Who knows what he's doing? Maybe he's hiding in a different room. Who knows? Maybe he was gathering supplies. I feel like Thomas was really practical. So I feel like he may have been feeling like, we can't just sit here. we got to do something, you know? Speaking of being in fear while you're waiting and needing to take action, he may have gone out to do something. But he wasn't there. So they tell him, hey, Thomas, Jesus came. And he's like, no, no, that doesn't sound right. <laughs> and they're like, no, Jesus appeared to us. He gave us the Holy Spirit. It was awesome. We're so joyful now. It's fantastic. And he was like, no, 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 that, that, that can't be true. I won't believe it until I see it. Maybe that's you this morning. People tell you they experienced God in prayer in a certain way or they met God through worship and you're like, yeah, no, I'll believe it when I see it. <laughs> I need God to appear to me to do that for me. And the beautiful thing is God does do that for him. Jesus comes back, another theophany just for Thomas. The scripture continues. A week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, again, he loves, loves good B&E, uh, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here. See my hands, reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God. Peace be with you. When God appears to us, he comes to still our fears and to bring us peace. Jesus breaks through the locked door. He meets them in their fear Interestingly, he didn't tell them anything new. He didn't give them a whole new set of plans. But after he's gone, everything changes for these disciples. After this moment in time, after this breaking and entering, they will go out in incredible courage and bravery like we've never seen them before. Their fear is still, they're given a peace and a courage in the Holy Spirit that will take them through persecutions through getting jailed, through being killed for their faith. But they will pursue it all with this courage like we've never seen in them before. He had taken their fear. He'd given them peace. Do not fear. Do not be afraid. I go with you. What area of your life do you need God to break into today? No matter how thick the door is or how many locks you've put on it, how much you've isolated yourself, Notice the disciples aren't feeling really full of faith when God shows up. <laughs> I think sometimes we think that God's not going to show up if we are full of questions and doubts, disappointment. Even if we're angry at God, I think we think, well, God won't show up because I'm not in the right state. <laughs> the disciples were in the worst state possible. They completely doubted everything Jesus had said to them. They were cowering behind this door all together, full of questions I would imagine angry and sad and disappointed, and God shows up. It's not about the state we're in. 
God loves us enough to show up to us, particularly in times of brokenness and sadness and doubt and questions. What area of your life do you need God to break into with his peace? What fears do you want to exchange this morning with him for his courage, for his peace? I'm going to pray for us now, and I just want to give us a minute of silence to lift to God any of those things, any of those situations that he's got on your heart, any of the places where you might just want to say, God, you promise that you're near to all who call on your name. I need you, I need you to follow up on your word on that in my life. Let's take a moment of quiet and then I'll pray. God, we bring to you these places in our lives that feel locked away. Whether it's our hearts, our minds, or our wills, God. Places where we don't feel your presence, or we're more aware of our fear than your gift of peace. God, we ask you to enter these places with your power, by your spirit, in spite of how we may feel or what we may think. We thank you, God, that your thoughts are higher than our thoughts, your ways greater than our ways. God, we thank you that you've come in your son out of love, not because of the state we were in, but in spite of it. And so we pray the same for your peace. May your peace, which surpasses all understanding, flood into our lives and become a fortress around our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. We thank you that you are the one that stills the storm. And Lord, if we're in a boat that's rocky this morning and the storm seems to be continuing, will you give us your peace that allows us to take a nap in the bottom of the boat with you? Will you give us that peace which looks crazy considering the circumstances around us, that we might know that it is your peace and not our own. We glorify you, Lord. We thank you for who you are. We thank you for your faithfulness to show up when we ask. In Jesus' name, amen.